0: Genesis 2:4 through 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The word of the Lord.
1: Emily, today. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Is risen Hallelujah. This is the let's see, third Sunday of Easter. We didn't really mention it last Sunday, but Rosie was asking me last night, how many Sundays are there in Easter season? Um, the answer is, I believe, six, because the last one is Pentecost Sunday. That's, that would be 50 days out. But um, we celebrate Easter for longer than one day. We celebrate the conquering of the grave for longer than one day. Uh, Sunday, and it's incidental, I think, to think of the church in this way of understanding that we fast for 40, we hear God's no to the way that humanity has structured itself, and bring ourselves towards um, recentering, um, recleaning ourselves, committing to God through prayer, fasting, alms, giving those traditional disciplines. But the yes that God speaks in the resurrection is greater than the no. 40 days to 50 days. Um, We spend more days in that celebratory time of what God has done and less time in that structure of which we try to um, bring ourselves closer to God because it is, in gospel truth, God who comes near to us. That's why it works. This Sunday is the second Sunday, though, in in a sermon series on who we are as humans. Now, if you were here last week, we primarily covered the bad news, um, which is that it is hard to have a coherent self in the modern world. We have this temptation to live as machines rather than as creatures, that was from Wendell Berry. We have this way in which we um, are always striving to make something of ourselves or which we surrender to meaninglessness, if not that. Um, we have these ways in which, we didn't, I didn't really hit on this, but that we view ourselves as limitless that medical technology or actual technology or other things will come to supplement all the ways in which my body doesn't work in the world. One of my favorite things, highlights from the book I highlighted last Sunday, The World Beyond Your Head, which is about becoming an individual in an age of distraction. To, to be able to, to take something in is the way in which we might become individuals. Was He, he references in his book the old Disney cartoons versus the new ones. The new ones work in sort of this magical way in which you have tools that you summon through um, mushka, mushka. Does anybody actually know the phrase? Something. You speak these words into the sphere and then the machine offers you solutions and how to apply them. But if you watch the older Disney cartoons, reality is endlessly frustrating. Things are breaking all the time. Um, Ice will fall on your head. Bikes will lose their tires. Um, Donald at one point picks up um, A kite on uh, an ice-skating rink and flies away, and it is uh, terrifying, um, to say the least. And it's a much different way in which we understand reality. We expect reality to be smooth today and all of our tools to work to create this smooth reality rather than what it actually is, frustrating. And so often when we bump up against our limits, we feel cheated. We feel like we've been robbed. When in fact, that was the deal all along. We've just pasted over it. And so we are these, in some sense, limited um, beings. These, these things that deal in that way. And that's much of what we've lost in the modern world. And then that, that how to pay attention to. This week, I want to start building back up what we are as creatures. What we are as what God has sort of created and placed in the world. In the words of what Carla read from Genesis, that we are these things that are sustained by borrowed breath breath that comes to us from the outside that we are um in the words of of brian read the psalm um glorious in some ways despite our limits we were we were crowned in a way just a little lower than the angels we see that sometimes in our world and the last, which um, Park read from John, was that idea in which these things were created not just by the Father, but through Christ, holding together this Trinitarian way of sort of understanding how creation works. So that is an intro to this sermon. Now, there's a couple things I want to say up front. First, um, let me think. This, this book, uh, which is actually, this is volume one of two, you can borrow them after the sermon series. They're, everybody I lend them to hates them um, because they're very complex. Do you, have you ever seen the, the gift from Always, Sunday, uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which I've never seen the show, with the guy with like a massive conspiracy theory up on the board, and he's like just trying to get you to get it? I see beauty in the complexness of what that book is. And when I finished seminary, what happened was I understood what the church was. That that came through uh, a lot of different things, but it was um, principally in a book that we give out often here, Resident Aliens, that I understood what it would mean to shepherd a church from that. But I um, And I went to a th- seminary that was very loaded into the therapeutic. I think of 100 kids there, uh, 80 were in the, the, the counseling uh, therapy program, and 20 were in the Masters of Divinity program. Imagine that worked out really well for me. Um, <laughs> it did not. Um, but, uh, uh, but what I left with was this question of what is a human then? What are we as people? What are we as things that navigate the world? And so right after I finished that book came out and I read through it, and it really set me in a place of understanding what does it mean that we are creatures? What does it mean that we are created by God? Now, what I want to say is while that book is new, David Kelsey, the author, is a theologian of the old. Nothing he, he proclaims in that book he invented or came up yesterday. So while you may think like, great, our pastor was influenced by a book that came out on Tuesday and now he's given us that. The richness of that book is that it's biblical theology through and through, but it's also um, enriched by all the saints of old and those who have discussed this questions up until now so it's not like david kelsey came up with a new solution to what's a human being he distilled the wisdom of the tradition christian tradition on that that was the first warning the second warning is if you look at the back of the bulletin um i'll put it up on the screen just for a second we have one more quote to get this is your classic nine-point sermon which means you get an F in preaching class if you have a nine-point sermon. Um, this is the sort of outline in a second that we'll get to of walking through what the sermon is about. So we'll talk, and in, I could have done it, but I wanted to leave them more as the concepts. You could structure this in a sentence if you wanted to. The Father relates to creation, creates um, an ordinary uh, uh, quotidian context in which is infused with glory, we respond in borrowed, we are here in borrowed breath, we respond in faith, and the practices we respond in faith to are practices of delight, of wonder, and perseverance. That would be that in one sentence, so we're done. Okay, sermon over. That makes complete sense. I have no explanations left to do. This is the first of three. So obviously, if anybody wants to guess, the second one actually won't be as obvious. The second one, we'll do spirit, and then we'll do sun as the final one. And you can look at other places in which things might sub in. What is the um, preposition that we might use for spirit or sun, the, the sun as he relates to us? What would we use for borrowed breath? Um, for the spirit, we'll talk about borrowed time. For the sun, we'll talk about living by another's death. Obviously, um, if you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, you respond in faith. In the Spirit, you respond in hope. And in the Son, you respond in love. And then there'll be practices for each one. Um, what, what sets this sermon apart and is, is more like theology than it is like exegesis of one text. And so I use the phrase biblical theology for it. Biblical theology would say Let's find out what a biblical theology of justice is, and then trace all the uses of justice to come up with what justice is. Theology more proper would say, what is the the context in which we flourish? You can't just look up in your accordance flourishing, and then try to make that. And so, this sermon series, it's only three Sundays if you hate it, Um, come and take communion. Um... Is, is this uh, way in which trying to do theology in the second sense of the term, of trying to distill the wisdom of what God says about us to us about who we are. Um, I've tried to do this in one Sunday before, and it's impossible. Um, um, but I think it's an important thing to clarify. What does it mean that we are these um, limited creatures made by God? And how do we reclaim that as we live in this fracturous Um, hard-to-attend-to, machine-like, modern world? How is it that we um, try to pull together a coherent self? Which maybe is the right way to look at this, is that at least if you're anything like me, it seems hard to pull together what a coherent self is in the modern world. Um, Because there are so many mechanisms of our own self-destruction. There are so many mechanisms of our own self-optimization. There are so many mechanisms of our own denial of goodness. There are so many misordered ways to desire our goodness, but in ways that distort us, that it's hard to know what does it mean to flourish and to be in the modern world. So we'll go back one step here. On the back of the bulletin last week was this quote um, from John Calvin. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and which one brings forth the other is not easy to discern. So if we want to talk about who we are, do we talk about what we can observe about who we are as creatures first, or do we talk about God first? And how God relates to us is sort of the question that Calvin, I believe this is at the first sentence of the Institutes. Um, What this series does is attempts to talk about God first. And part of the reason why I think that's an important choice to make today is because we find ourselves endlessly fascinating. We are driven to see each of our unique particular contexts as individualized, separated from the whole, so much so that if we were to really start with ourselves, we'd come up with a theology that's just for ourselves. So grounding it in God opens up different options for us. Um, this, this phrase actually made me think of that. I saw this in a, an email get weekly from a magazine. About 75% of Americans do not think that belief in God is necessary for a coherent moral order. 65% of Americans do not think that belief in God is necessary for a coherent moral order. Now, this isn't an argument to say that we do need belief in God to have a coherent moral order. What I want to say is, what else would we use... And how would we negotiate conflicts over what else would we use? If it's unlimited freedom, and somebody wants to choose something that violates somebody else's freedom, what is, how are you going to decide to restrain that? If it's unlimited consumption, and we end up finding unlimited consumption destroys our equally shared world, what then is the higher good that says we must restrict some of that to be able to do this? philosophers and theologians and not theologians have spent a lot of time discerning that. I don't want to say there's an easy answer. My point is, I don't think the 65% of Americans who say we don't need God to have a coherent moral order have another option. I don't think they've articulated what might make a coherent moral order other than can't we all just be happy. You could think about all the ways in which that can go wrong, whose happiness first, um, whose choices first, all that. And so what this series does is it attempts to define us as humans as uh, eccentric. That's the name of the book, Eccentric Existence. Eccentric, and uh, if you write it this way, it makes it more sense, eccentric, that which is outside us. If we're going to talk about what humans are, we need to talk about that which is not within us, but is eccentric to us. That is not located within our being, but is located within relations with one who created us and made us. So this is the Christian answer, which, congrats, you came to church. This is what you get here. Um, uh, So that's where we are on that one. Um, This is how Kelsey phrases it, though, at the beginning of the book. with lots of big words at the front, but then as now, this tridactic doxological phrase gives a specifically Christian description of God's identity by reference to three sets of stories about God. First, stories about God as the source of all reality other than God. No, of the source of all reality other than God. God as the father of us all. Stories about God as the reconciler of alienated humankind in Jesus Christ. And stories about God bringing us to consummation and eschatological life, end times life, full life, and the Holy Spirit. These are the three stories then at which God relates to us. I've showed this in our Wisdom Literature series in sort of this three, um, like a DNA-like strand of creates, redeems, and consummates. God creates, he redeems, and consummates. Now what I've tried to argue when I've used this graphic before is this First off, for me, this was very um, releasing from my shallow ways of understanding the scriptures because all I could think about was the redemption lens at which God might relate to us. I had no theology of creation. I had no theology of how we might be consummated in the fullness of time with God. I basically had, we've sinned, God needs to fix the problem of sin, And that's all of what I understood as how we are as humans. That's not a complete way to read the Bible, because there's much that stresses other realities other than that. And these three ways, I think, help us find those other realities. And so, as a reading strategy, as a devotional strategy, I think this, I've been trying to argue, is a good way for beginning to approach the Bible. Not always looking for how is God conquering sin, But how might God be blessing us through creation? Not always looking for how God might be blessing us through creation, but how God's plan is to bring consummation and ultimate goodness of all that is. In Paul's language, to sum it all up in Jesus Christ. And where it is, the message, to see clearly that God is working to redeem estranged humanity and place it back in communion with him. So for me, this was a helpful way of then beginning to be able to discern with the scripture and have it guide me into a um, three-dimensional way of life. I think that's the way I like to put it, is that I lived one-dimensionally with only the redemptive arc. And I, 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 would, I say that because I think that's um, a very American arc. I think we've made that sort of um, our sort of flag in which all the other things hold together. Um, and I think that scripture is too rich to be governed by any one of the three. I mean, if you hear me saying, my pastor isn't crazy about redemption. He says, think about creates and uh, consummates. No, I think they're all three of them important, and all three of them are equally woven throughout the scriptures, and all three of them will help us understand who we are as created beings of God. So to the outline, what you've all been waiting for. I say that, you can laugh. <laughs> I know it's not what you've all been waiting for. Um, so eccentric to us, three ways of doing it. Um, and then trying to hear what it means for God. So the first in these ways is Father. Um, Kelsey, and I think this is correct, to to ground these things, and we tried to do that with the... Um, uh, John reading today that, that all creation is through Christ. While we locate one of the, each of these with one person being the major actor of the Trinity, in creates the Father, in uh, consummates the Spirit, in uh, reconciles the work of the Son, um, they all three are working together in whichever one. It's more of saying which one is the primary driver of the act. So it's the three and the one that are always sort of going together. Um, Father is this language that we have for God, and it really comes out of this beautiful way of thinking that, that Jesus, when he comes amongst us, reveals the name at which we shall re- re- um, relate to God as Father. It is revealed language for how we are to understand God. Now, I always try to say this, is God is not male, God is not female, but God is Father. Scripture uses multiple other metaphors to capture how God relates to humanity. Some of them are feminine, some of them are masculine. What's interesting is that all the other ones are located generally as metaphors. Jerusalem, I long to shelter you under my wings as a chicken shelters its chicks under its wings. They operate metaphorically, which is good. We need lots of metaphors to be able to grasp who God is. Father, though, in this Trinitarian language of Father, Son, and Spirit, is hard to flatten out into the same metaphoric language because it seems like revealed language. There are um, challenges with that, but I don't think we can make it around that. That is the language in which is revealed in Jesus' own language to referring to God as Father. Now in the words of the Creed, Jesus is begotten by the Father, and we are created, which is a big difference. Jesus is on the more on the creator side of um, the creature, creator, divide. We are fully on the creature side of the creature-created divide. What the New Testament captures for us is that through Jesus, we are moved from just knowing God as a distant creator, but being able to use the revealed language that he gives to his people, his disciples, the language of Father. So the one who is known as creator throughout most of the Bible or multiple other metaphors is finally revealed as the one whom we are able to call Father and that's because of the work which Jesus did as his son. The next is two. The Father relates to creation. Now, each one of these will have a different preposition in which it expresses what the, the actor of the Trinity is doing with us. Where the Father relates to creation. Kelsey likes this phrase, and I've come to like it myself, is because it represents both the radical otherness of how God relates to us and the radical nearness to how God relates to us. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves, and yet God remains firmly on the other side of the creator-creature distinction divide. But the Father relates to us in making creation. He relates to us and he places us in a different context, Um, uh, he places us in a different reality. It was, it was funny, um, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, had um, uh, a phrase about, you know, considering all the facts of the universe, he, he paused to say, all the facts there is are the facts of the universe. There are no other facts outside of the facts of the universe. So God has placed us in this realm in which he relates to us. He relates to us in creation as he creates. Um, This is where God sets us within this created realm. Calvin, going back to Calvin again, he he describes this realm as the theater of God's glory. If you know the first question to the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the chief end of man to glorify him and and enjoy him forever? That that this is the realm in which we are plated. And so this, this created context is both Glorified and ridden with difficulties and sin. Now, one of the things that I've tried to argue in the Wisdom Literature series is that if we want to talk about creation. It's more helpful to talk about wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. But, <laughs> Song of Songs, but that may be the exception to the rule there. I think that there's lots of creation in that too. But, but more often we mean um, there's a debate on whether Song of Songs is wisdom literature at all, but, um, but if it's not, then it's just weird erotic poetry. So I like to place it as wisdom literature. Um, if you look at those books, we find a different way of understanding what it means to be created. And what we're called to do in this created context is sort of find and be wise. The reason why we might want to root it there than rather the book of Genesis is Genesis seems like clearly redemptive history. It introduces the problem right off the bat. Adam and Eve eat of the, of, of the fruit. Um, uh, God quickly says that the serpent and, and the people will have um, amnesty between them and that someday an heir of the um, human will stomp on the other one's head and sort of blot it out. Instantly after that, violence um, springs out of control. The first two real humans, the first two born humans, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve aren't born in the same way, um, murder each other. Um, And so it seems like Genesis has this redemptive history to it. Um, But if we look at wisdom literature, I want to say two things, and these are, uh, to make things complicated, I put it in parentheses. I don't know why. Because they're underneath um, creation. First is the quotidian, that God places us in an ordinary concept, and that is good for us. To say that we are placed in this realm in which um, we marry, we have kids, we make friends, we go to work, we have life, this, that, and the other, is to place it within the realm of the ordinary. One of the things I think placing it in that realm is it frees us from two things. One is totalizing theories of history to say that the goal of humanity is to make a totalizing project of what might come of history. It's lived in its day-to-day ad hoc relations. And that is a temptation that I think we see it in its Marxist form, we can also see it in multiple other forms, but this idea that we can make a coherent whole of all of history. The second thing is, which I think is more important today, it frees us from thinking we can make coherent life projects of all of ourselves. So much of the modern world is to say, um, if you diet right, if you um, uh, be productive right, if you do all this, somehow you will die fitter than everyone else. Death still reigns at the end of this. And so often in these wars against the ordinariness of creation, we're trying to come up with totalizing projects of our own life projects. This is where the book of Ecclesiastes last summer became very wise, reminding us that um, if you make life about profit, if you make life about sex, if you make life about all these things, eventually it either runs out, kills you, or you die from it. But the real thing you can do is to rest from your labors Um, relax in the creator and take in the goodness of that day. They call these the carpe diem passages of of Ecclesiastes, but they're less seize the day. That would be more, I think, our tendency to say, I better optimize all of my life. They're more um, rest in the day, rejoice in the day, end the day knowing that your day was good because it had been blessed by God despite the frustrations that come up in the meantime. Um, This is Bonhoeffer on that. Uh, It is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, whether it be a saint or something of a converted sinner or a churchman. By this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, failures, experiences, and perplexities. In doing so, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God. That, I think, is faith in how one becomes a man, a human, a Christian. It's only in living in the this worldliness of the world that we're able to, to sort of relax from needing to totalize history, or to totalize ourselves. Glory we'll get to at the end. I do just want to say on glory, we live amongst other people. That's one of, I think, the key insights about living as creatures, is that there are other creatures. We live in this world, and they are glorious alongside of us. They are frustrating. They are sinful. They are broken as we are, and yet we see glory coming through these things. In the psalmist language um, that we read this morning, you have made them a little bit uh, lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Um, And one of the things that I think is challenging about this is I talk about this in marriage counseling sometimes to myself too. Thanks, Kelly. Um, (laughs) uh, Is that one of the things we can do in our relationships with other people is grow each other's glory. We'll talk about that with the practices. But one of the things that most challenges us is seeing somebody else's glory growing, that they're growing into who God made them to be, their individual creature context, is we begin to resent them. It is hard to wish the best for other people, and it's truly hard to wish the best for people closest to you, I think, if you're honest with yourself sometimes. Sometimes. See your partner or your friends or other people growing in competency and relating to the world can easily bring up resentment. And if you don't name that, you murder your brother like Cain and Abel. Um, You you can grow into resentment so fast. There's a two-part phrase I like that we should be careful with who we share good news with and we should be careful who we share bad news with. People you share good news with who say who point out all the problems. It's nice you were nominated for that award, but I don't think you'll win. Um, Your challenge that you're facing is not that important. I don't know if you've noticed this. There are people who, that when you bring up a challenge you're facing, it instantly goes back to something from their life, which first off is an attempt to help sometimes but it often is not appropriately sitting with the context of which the other person is coming to you from. Um, we'll come back to that. That'll be the end of the sermon. Borrowed breath from the book of Genesis. Um, we live with our bodies more on loan than ownership of it. There was a great SNL skit a couple years ago about, is, are they Republican? And there were two people And they'd bring out one person, and the question was, are they Republican? And so the questions that they would say, the person who you were trying to find out if they're Republican or not would say things like, Dave Chappelle is my favorite comedian, and the two people trying to guess would go, since when? Or, um, uh, I like cargo pants, and they'd say, on Rihanna? Or, because you wear them to hunt? Um, I eat organic produce, because that's a value, or because it's your only choice? They were trying to discern this. But one part, I think, that comes to the head with this, that we live on borrowed breath, is um, my pinned tweet, one of them said, is my body, my choice. And the two candidates trying to guess were like, because of the vaccine or because of abortion? Um, Which I think is just funny. Um, We just can't discern these things. But what I want to say about that idea, my body, my choice, because of either one of those, is not something Christians get to say. Our body has been blessed and given us got by God to create flourishing in our context for others and for ourselves, for those near to us and this, that, and the other. So there is no, for the Christian, my body, my choice. There might be other reasons for, this is not an answer to the political question of which one of those things, by the way. It's just to say, we live on borrowed breath. God has breathed the breath of life into us And so it is for us in our time here on earth to reply back to God with the breath that he has breathed into this dust and made us humans. We are to live in response to the God who made us. Incidentally, the word for um, soul in Hebrew is connected to breath, nephesh. Our souls are that which comes from borrowed breath. And here we find in our broad breath that we are finite, not infinite. We don't have everlasting possibility. We are limited. We are not limitless. Alistair MacIntyre's book on what humans are calls them dependent rational animals. I like that, but, but the first word there, we are dependent. Humanity abstracted from all other humanity as such would cease to be humanity in some ways. We are caught up in complex patterns of relationships to one another. We live on borrowed breath. I have a long quote here, but I can't read it on this little screen. Um, This is from the book of Acts, um, Acts 17. It captures some of what it means to live by borrowed breath, that he has given us all breath, um, and he's marked out our appointed times and histories and the boundaries of the lands. Um, God is essentially appealing to the people in Athens um, that God is our creator. Even your own poets have said, For in him we live and move and have our being. God is the creator of, of him who, for we, whom we live and move and have our being. So, as we go into this next session, So, now faith, hope, and love abide— these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is where we respond in faith. Faith is this belief that is, we are radically given to by God. It's not fa- I'm not saying faith is given to us by God. It's a different debate for a different day. That we are radically given by God. That God radically has placed us into this co- context. And what we say in faith is that we are those who are receivers of what God has done in making creation to put us in this context to flourish and to glorify. Faith is this challenge, particularly in the modern world, to say in spite of the evidence that there's more than what we see, that there is a creator beyond us, there is hope, there is goodness, that despite our limits, there is some sense in which this will all be summed up, that we've been placed here and to put trust in that, um, faith uh, when I was diagnosed with MS Barbara Brown Taylor um, who's a, a woman, she used to be an Episcopal priest now she's I would say sort of a devotional writer she was in an interview and she said faith is the radical statement that what happens to me is for me that what happens to me is for me if you win the lotto that is the easiest thing to accept If you get diagnosed, lose something, find yourself in a struggle. Faith is the continued insistence that in some ways what is happening to me is for me. And we don't get to say this for other people, by the way. What is happening to me is for me. And I think one of the challenges that comes up with that is here we can be broken, those challenges, in some sense, do break people. And we find ourselves trying to hold on to faith. Faith makes us loyal to the ordinary, um, the quotidian. Faith makes us, and G.K. Chesterton's phrase, since we just finished that book, patriots of reality. Faith makes us those who can reside in our creaturely limits and lives quite easily. Out of faith comes these two practices. Uh, Kelsey calls them doxological gratitude. Um, We sing the doxology at the end of service. Um, Doxological gratitude. To practice wonder, to practice delight, and to practice perseverance. As we are creatures bound in the theater of God's glory, to practice wonder at other creatures, to have curiosity towards them, to practice wonder at creation. He says that the opposite of this, um, the sinful version, and we'll, we'll do these together, is sentimentality. If you're practicing wonder, the reverse is practicing sentimentality. Practicing wonder is in some sense taking in what is before you, not in a way to use it, not in a way to um, control it, um, not in a way to make it uh, kish or to reproduce it, but to practice wonder as reality as it confronts you. Walker Percy tells the story of the first person to confront the Grand Canyon and the awe at which they might have taken it in with. And the challenge we have going today is it's looked bigger in the postcard. Um, Looked smaller in the postcard. Um, The number one injury at national parks now is selfies. Um, And so there's this idea in which we're not practicing wonder. We're practicing capturing the moment to share it neatly on Instagram so that our friends will like it. Um, practicing wonder calls us into the presentness of things. It was a challenge. Um, Our first ultrasound with Rosie, um, or Kelly's listening today, Um, there were all these challenges of which, like, here's your baby's heartbeat, and I could only think of, like, how I'm supposed to react because I've seen it a thousand times. Like, there was no, like, authentic way in which I, and we talked about authentic, last week. But there was no way for me to enter into the moment not thinking about, well, in this movie the guy did this, in this movie the guy did this, in this TV show they did this. So I told all those to Kelly and she kicked me out of the room. (laughs) Not when I did. When I got home I told her about that essay by Walker Percy and she said, I think you're missing the point. (laughs) Faith is (laughs) To practice wonder then. Uh, To practice, uh, oh, I have them backwards up there, different on here. Practice delight. Um, to see the sheer givenness of what is, to rejoice in others, to rejoice in others and not use them, consume them, or abuse them. That would be the reverse. But to rejoice with them, to be present in a way that rejoices in their shared particularity with you. Perseverance, which I think is one of the hardest ones in the modern world, is to continue to be present, to continue to maintain in that space, to continue to not let go. Because the commitment that we have to creation is, it can be mirrored to God's commitment to creation. God does not persevere with us through what he has created. He perseveres with us. So we can practice that practice of persevering with others. The negative practice with this one is we practice self-negation. We begin to turn against that this is, that this is good. Um, And we can begin to say that this is all that there is. It is all pain and suffering. And the chief sin, Kelsey writes the second chapter, is to no longer trust that the creator is for you and responding as created beings. To end the sermon, since I read this quote from C.S. Lewis a long time ago, I have long thought, how do I get this into a sermon? It's been 18 years. I'm going to read it today. It's at the end of The Weight of Glory, and it so accurately captures everything I said. So if you zoned out, Come back for one moment. This will capture much of what I said. If you said, why did not you just read this and let us go home early? I've got to justify my income somehow. (laughs) Meanwhile, the cross becomes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following hymn is, of course, the essential point. That being so, me ask what practical use there is of the speculations which I have been indulging. That goes for my sermon as well. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory he after. It is hardly possible for him to think too much or too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be daily laid on my back, a load so heavy that it can only only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would not you would be so strongly tempted to worship or at least a horror or corruption such as now you now meet if all only in nightmare All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all our loves, all our play, all our politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their lives is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, sub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are potentially solemn. We must play, but our merry must be of that kind which exists between people who from the outset have taken each other so seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feelings for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence with parodies as love and flippancy parodies as merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object present to your senses. He is your Christian neighbor. He is holy in almost the same way you are. For in him, Christ is also the glorifier and the glorified. Glory in himself is truly hidden. Let us pray. God, you have created this context in which you relate to us. You relate to us across the great distance. You are both other and nearer to us than we are to ourselves. You've blessed us into this creation, this ordinary glorious space in which we are freed to magnify the glory of you and to magnify and bring out the glory of others and to respond in ways of of faith to the present in which we are called. To not look for more beyond the moment a totalizing project for ourselves or a totalizing theory of history, but to see each person as a related creature to you and in that way and to relate to them as such. We must play, but play with a seriousness that takes into account that each one of us has borrowed breath from you. We are called to respond in faith practices of delight and wonder and perseverance. Be near to us now as we breathe in our borrowed breath. And we serve you in this